surprised to find that your manufacturing supply chain ends in a prison. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. the stories about terrible working conditions in factories in China and elsewhere in Asia. Investigators have uncovered the use of child labor, brutally long hours without overtime pay, and unsafe working conditions. But there's another issue that often flies under the radar and is much harder to identify. It's the use of prison labor to make everyday consumer goods. You might have to go five or six tiers up the supply chain to find it, but the practice is disturbingly common. Here to tell us about it is my guest today, Greg Hallahan, Senior Director with FT Consulting and an expert on the use of unauthorized subcontractors in Asian markets. He tells us how serious the practice is, why many companies are unaware of it, and how it can be stopped. He also probes the issue of unvetted suppliers of logistics and transportation services and explains how some suppliers engage in rig bidding so that a supposedly competitive process is anything but. So here is my conversation with Greg Hallahan, speaking to us from Hong Kong. Greg Hallahan, welcome to the program. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me on. You are the author of a recent article in the FTI Journal called Loose Links in the Asian Supply Chain. Tell me what uh, the situation is right now with regard to the use of unauthorized subcontractors. And if you want to focus more broad, more deeply on China specifically, go ahead and do that. But what is the big picture right now in terms of how prevalent that practice is? Well, sure, it's a good question. And yeah, I think uh, for the purposes of this conversation, we'll focus on mainland China. But I think that most of what we talk about will be broadly applicable elsewhere, uh, particularly with so-called emerging countries. Now, in terms of how prevalent it is, it's, it's hard to say. Um, but I think in general, the, both general public and supply chain professionals are more aware than ever that there is an issue. Um, to what extent, though, that has trickled down to substantive changes to company procedures within their own supply chains, I'm not sure. In the research we've done and in the cases we've looked at, uh, we still find fairly consistently that um, uh, around a quarter of the information our clients have on their suppliers is either wrong or outdated. And uh, well over 40% of the suppliers themselves have undisclosed side businesses, usually as a result of key principles owning you know, other factories or other production facilities that they, they haven't told our clients about. So I think it's a fairly consistent problem. I don't, I don't see it uh, having changed for better uh, in, in the recent uh, years. Or for worse? I mean, you, you don't think the situation is, is, is markedly worse than it has been in, in past years? Again, it's hard to say. I, I 
would know if it's got worse. So we, we our findings tend to be fairly consistent. Certainly more examples have come to light recently. You see any number of tainted food scandals, uh, construction materials causing the failure of buildings. And then recently in the U.S., uh, a couple of times there have been notes from prisoners in yeah. China um, pleading, pleading for help, um, which uh, causes the person who's just bought the, the products from Walmart or Sears or wherever. Tell us that story that you that you opened up your article with about the Oregon woman who was uh, buying Halloween decorations at a local Kmart and what she discovered. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's a surprising story. But actually, it happens um, more often than you might think. A lady bought a Halloween decoration, and within the packaging found a handwritten note, actually in English, from a prisoner in China uh, pleading for help. Obviously, the manufacturer of the product was Sears, and, and they conducted an investigation themselves and didn't find uh, where this had come from. But by that stage, some reputational damage had already been done. Uh, prisons are uh, an interesting angle in mainland China in particular because... They are often used for manufacture of product. It is not a private practice. It's very well known. Uh, prisons are expected to run as commercial enterprises. And if you go onto the Chinese internet, you'll find any number of advertisements by agents online offering local prison labor. Um, in fact, uh, only recently in, in 2013, uh, a a number of airlines were found to have had their headphones unknowingly manufactured by a notorious prison in China called Dongguan Prison in the south of the country. Now, any particular industries that where, where this problem is most egregious, like whether it's high-tech, apparel, toys, whatever? It tends to be a more low-tech industries that don't require specialized equipment or skills because obviously those are the easiest to subcontract. Uh, in fact, I can I have the the top five products that are manufactured by Chinese prisons. They're festive decorations. Uh, so, and the Halloween decoration is a good example of that. Uh, often, actually, festive decorations are are fairly high risk because they tend to be something that's only made once or twice a year, and they tend to need to be made in in large quantities. So, the suppliers are unwilling to turn down. Uh, orders and to deal with the overflow, subcontract uh, part or all of the order out to um, to local prison or, or elsewhere. In addition to these, artificial flowers, uh, Chinese tea, vulcanized rubber products are all very commonly made in prisons. Now, the number one is something that I bet you'll never be able to guess. Try me. <laughs> what is it? It's actually online game. So the number one uh, product, so to speak, being made now in Chinese prisons is um, online virtual currency for role-playing games. And they have prisoners working at uh, terminals you know, 10, 12 hours a day, and they just collect online currency that they then gets resold for real currency on, on online exchanges. That is bizarre. I mean, it's not even like <laughs> phys physical storage media. It's not discs, cartridges for games. It's just the actual online currency, right? Yeah, for, for role-playing games like World of Warcraft and things like that. That seems to be an invitation for hijinks on the part of the Chinese prisoners who have access to the Internet as well. I can't, I, I'm very shocked that the prisons themselves would allow them access to that, although I guess they're monitoring it, so... Maybe they don't consider it to be a risk, but that that is something that uh, doesn't come out in headlines for the most part. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure they're not checking their Facebook um, halfway through, so I yeah. think it's fairly well regulated and controlled. 
But but going back to your question, the low-tech um, products are, I think, most at risk. Mainly components of larger products, you know, zippers, buttons, uh, apparel, toys, um, and then the cheaper festive decorations. How many tiers up the supply chain in terms of sub-suppliers, the subcontractors, did you typically have to go before you find this this, le- this layer of, uh, of forced labor? Supply chains in China and in Asia in general tend to be very tangled and quite complex with a lot of undisclosed connections, uh, both personal and professional. And it's very hard to untangle this, a reasonable time frame and for a reasonable cost. Uh, I would say that it goes down two, three, four, five, six chain uh, levels down the chain. And I should point out, too, it's, it's not only the manufacturer uh, of products that's at risk. It's also the logistics that surround the, the manufacturer and shipping of products uh, that's problematic, particularly in somewhere like China where um, the logistics industry is still fairly nascent, uh, particularly in Tier 2 and below cities. So the storage and uh, transportation of products is at risk for being uh, contracted out to to very small local players who themselves are often unregistered businesses. We're not necessarily talking now about forced labor. We're just talking about unauthorized subcontractors deep in the supply chain, right? Exactly. Yeah, this is not forced. This is just a very fractured, not particularly well-regulated industry that's still growing to catch up with demand. And so what you'll find is transportation in a Tier 2 city and and the trucking of products might be contracted out two or three times to local small players. And that opens up a whole Pandora's box of other risks. Um, We we frequently find that these types of contractors are the ones most at risk for, say, stopping their trucks and and switching out genuine product for counterfeit product or just outright theft. Are those subcontractors being used by the manufacturer to cut costs or because they're the only, they're the only game in town in Tier 2 cities? Well, it's a kind of a combination of both. Uh, obviously, cutting costs is a powerful incentive. And, uh, you know, suppliers are in a very uh, fierce competition with each other. Uh, costs continue to rise, particularly labor costs, and margins are razor thin. So if there's an opportunity to cut costs, m- many of them will. And subcontracting out um, is one way to do that, potentially. And then in terms of uh, supply, if there are busy periods and supply becomes constricted, um, legitimate supply, then maybe they have an incentive to contract out. A classic um, time is around Chinese holidays. So Chinese New Year, uh, which is usually in the end of January or early February, Many employees will go on holiday. They go back to their hometown. And suppliers then have uh, serious constraints on, on uh, their capacity. So this is a time when there's a, an increased risk that they will subcontract out. And, and going back to the forced labor, you know, the prisoners aren't going anywhere. They don't get holidays. So this is a classic time when suppliers have a, an incentive to subcontract out. I, I've seen a, a new survey just came out from Metric Stream. Of, uh, of about non-compliant suppliers, and it found that of the of the companies that were surveyed, 91% actually had a compliance program in place, but 50% were facing issues of supplier non-compliance. So the mere having of the program didn't seem to do the job. Now, when you look out there on this landscape and you see the problem, is the problem the utter lack of 
of compliance programs, or is it just that compliance programs are in place, but they are ineffective? Well, it's a great question. And going back to a point I made earlier, I think the awareness is there or thereabouts now that, you know, these are issues. And typically the clients that uh, we come across uh, have compliance policies and procedures in place. It's more that the implementation of these is lacking still. One reason, I think, is because the understanding of unauthorized subcontracting and the potential for it within your own supply chain tends to fall between two stools. On the one hand, you have environmental health and safety, which is, is uh, I think, very well understood and increasingly well enforced. And then you have, of course, product quality, which is extremely well understood and, and very well enforced. But in between those, it's, it's not always clear to companies who's responsible for understanding the suppliers themselves. And by that, I mean understanding who owns the suppliers. What's, what, what else are they doing? What other products are they making? Um, what is their production capacity? What's their headcount? Um, and, and, and these type of things. I think another point that is, um, is common is the compliance policies uh, instruct companies as to how to onboard new suppliers. And they, they collect the requisite documentation and questionnaires maybe for new suppliers. But um, what we see is there's not a lot of ongoing checkups after this initial onboarding. And it's not seen as a dynamic, continual, ongoing process. It's more kind of a one-off, okay, we checked them, and, and now we'll leave them alone. But, you know, things change, and uh, suppliers that you're using need to be continually checked on and, and their information updated. Yeah, that, that's borne out as well by this new metric stream survey, which found that uh, supplier compliance information is usually gathered by companies only when a potential supplier is being initially evaluated. It says that only about a fourth of the surveyed companies actually validate supplier compliance data on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, biannual, or annual basis. This certainly bears out what you were saying. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. We've seen that many times. And I, I think another issue is that there's, there's no real incentive for supply chain professionals to do that type of thing. You know, like I said, the environmental health and safety is is uh, very well understood and monitored, and it's something that speaks to consumers who are keen to make sure that things are ethically sourced. The product quality is is very well understood, and there are clear goals for that. But this in between monitoring of suppliers and the compliance side of things, there's no real incentive, and it's hard to determine how well, how good a job you're doing. Uh, where the other two, it's you know, the parameters are more clear. So I think many supply chain professionals are very excited by, you know, um, delivery by drones or new technology, and and who wants to do this more menial, unglamorous work of checking every six months or every quarter, uh, um, you know, a tier two supplier's corporate records or doing unannounced side visits out in the middle of nowhere to a factory to make sure that it's manufacturing your goods. It's, it's well, very unglamorous work. Wouldn't the incentive be, however, that brand value can be degraded by stories like this coming out? I mean, just as is the case with worker safety and product quality, when stories like that come out, it can be quite embarrassing to a national or international brand. Wouldn't the same be the case, in, say, even in the use of forced labor? Or do you find that there isn't a lot of public awareness or even caring about that kind of thing? 
No, I think absolutely the, the brand can be damaged, and that is a, a, should be a powerful incentive for companies. But on an individual level, from the individual supply chain professionals tasked with doing this, it's quite unglamorous work, and I'm not sure that companies sufficiently reward the individuals tasked with the compliance element, because you don't know if there's a problem until there's a problem. So it's quite it's it's not always clear to what extent your compliance policy is, is being successful or not. Um, so I think companies need to do a better job of of more than lip service to to this angle of supply chain management, and they need to reward the people who work for them who, to make sure that they really go out and thoroughly vet suppliers on an ongoing basis. Meanwhile, some of the shadier suppliers are doing their best to make it even more difficult for these companies to ascertain that they're on the up and up. In your article, you talk about the practice of rigged bidding. Could you explain what that is and how companies might engage in that in order to kind of force the choice of a supplier when indeed the uh, the original company thought it was making an actual choice? Yeah, it's something we see on a on a very regular basis. Uh, and again, it, it speaks to the earlier point that supply chains in both China and Asia in general tend to be quite tangled. And the personal and professional are perhaps more intertwined here than they might be in, in many Western countries. So typically, if you're dealing with one supplier, um, the key principal of that supplier will likely own several other related businesses. It's rare that the key principal just owns the one factory and that's it. And or if your own production staff, particularly your local procurement staff, are know what you're bidding on, there's an incentive for them to uh, set up friends and family as a new supplier because they know they can potentially guarantee uh, contracts going their way. So there's a confluence of interests here that operates under the surface. And head office in the U.S. or in Europe uh, it's not always uh, privy to what's going on locally. And this often results in, in bid ringing where you have three apparently independent, or three or four, or however many apparently independent suppliers bid for the same tender. But in fact, all three are connected in some way. But are those relationships actually discoverable on the part of a company that's willing to do the due diligence, like get down to the local level? Can they find that information out, or are these companies doing their best to conceal it? Actually, they're getting information, publicly available information on companies and individuals um, is surprisingly easy, both in the PRC and increasingly in other parts of Asia. Uh, public records for most companies are available. Uh, they're even available online, and you can uh, typically tell the directors, legal representatives, and shareholders of companies uh, from these corporate records. So that should tell you, ideally, who owns the company. And then you can go one level deeper, which doesn't require a whole lot of effort. If you just look at the Chinese Internet, for example, you can look at uh, B2B online corporate directories, and you can see what mobile phone numbers companies are using as their point of contact. And you can just check that, that phone number against your own staff records and then your contact numbers for other suppliers. And there may be a match. And then social media might uh, uh, uncover relationships between workers and their online profiles. So if, if a company is working very hard to obfuscate or cover up connections, 
yes, it's difficult, but most don't. And there are publicly available online records that are fairly easy to obtain. Obviously, you know, you need uh, local language, but are fairly easy to obtain. And, and I think companies should do a better job of, of um, making sure they obtain these. Sounds like these uh, illicit suppliers are trusting that they won't. Uh, if the information yeah. is there, they they just say, well, they probably won't even won't even check, so we we're going to get away with this. But uh, yeah, and yeah, and look, companies companies can also shift a lot of this burden onto the suppliers themselves and ask for more in terms of corporate records and more in terms of ownership and what other businesses the owners are involved with. This type of thing. Clearly, you have to get beyond simply asking the supplier to to attest to its honesty and its complicity in all of your rules because that hasn't worked. You need to get around and, and, and ascertain whether it's doing it beyond simply trusting the supplier's word. Sure. But if you can get information from them, a lot of what you do then becomes verification of what they've given you uh, as opposed to pure investigation on your behalf. So you shift some of the burden onto them. And, of course, you need to verify their documentation. Uh, but at least they've, they've taken the first step and provided some of it to you. So I think, I think any good compliance policy is, is a, a blend between thorough verification of what's being provided to you and then your own uh, investigation um, into the, the suppliers themselves. And a, a good example of the latter would be an unannounced, an unannounced site visit. To, to a facility. Just show up at, at the facility and say, we're here to check what? Check your records? Check your factory? I mean, showing up at a site doesn't necessarily clue, clue you into the fact that, fi- that, that there's a five-tier level that ends at a prison. How does a visit help you to uncover that? Yeah, I mean, by definition, if uh, subcontracting is taking place, you won't see it at the original supplier because obviously it's elsewhere. So it's hard to spot, as opposed to, say, um, um, an environmental health or safety issue with the, the factory itself or child labor, which you should be able to see on site. So subcontracting is, is quite tricky. How, how you could attempt to look into it is to understand what production is taking place there and then at the facility and what production capacity it has and extrapolate from there you know how much you've given that, that uh, particular supplier to manufacture and you know when it should be done. And hopefully you should be able to extrapolate a reasoned estimate as to are they being able to do it all on site. And if, if it doesn't look like that's the case, uh, you can ask reasonable and reasoned questions on where else is it being produced. Are you suggesting that it is within the ability of all companies to practice this level of due diligence? I mean, if you're a Walmart or if you're a big OEM, uh, certainly you have the resources, you have people on the ground, you have language skills, you have all this stuff that makes it at least theoretically possible for you to uncover this. But if you're a small to medium-sized buyer of services in, in China, should you perhaps be outsourcing this effort to, to somebody or should you really be able to do it within your own internal compliance department? Yeah, and it's a good question. It's something that each company needs to consider, obviously, uh, themselves internally. Um, I think there's a number of ways around it. One is, as we discussed earlier, trying to shift the burden as much as possible onto the suppliers themselves to provide you the initial, more information than perhaps they're currently providing. 
and then you verify that. And then one or two unannounced signs is it will certainly send a message, uh, at least to the company you've done it to, that this is now a possibility, that it could happen in the future, that it may uh, influence their behavior for good going forward. Is there a mechanism for this information to be shared among different companies? I mean, once one company has detected that a particular supplier has violated the rules, can it then share that with others so as to make it harder for that company to do business with, with, with others? I mean, it's, it's a great idea, and um, I'm, I'm sure within supply chain professionals operating here, both formally and informally, there's some sharing of, of um, information. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly some sharing of horror stories that, that might help. To what extent yeah. uh, there's a formal structure to do that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Some of this can be subtract, uh, subcontracted to verification experts who have a larger infrastructure in place. And of course, that's, that's an option for some companies to consider, particularly the smaller ones. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop. There's so much to be, more to be said about this. Uh, your article, Loose Links in the Asian Supply Chain, appears in the August 2015 issue of FTI Journal. I will link to that article in the show notes to this episode. In the meantime, Greg Hallahan, I want to thank you so much for being with us from Hong Kong to tell us about this critical issue of forced labor in Asia and how companies might approach it. Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That was my conversation with Greg Hallahan of FT Consulting, talking about the use of forced and unauthorized factory labor in Asia. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. <laughs>